What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Justin Marks. Justin is the owner of NASCAR Cup Series team Trackhouse Racing. We discuss the business behind owning a NASCAR team, why he thinks the sport is right for disruption, how he thinks about building a team, the future of media rights in the United States, and more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Justin, and I learned a lot. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you, so it's easy to digest and actionable. But here's the best part. Their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. So to celebrate that and Mother's Day coming right up, Whoop is offering 15% off and free shipping when you use code Joe, J-O-E, at checkout. So go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, and use code Joe, J-O-E, to save 15% off and get free shipping for a limited time only. Next up is 8Sleep. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before, all thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress. The temperature regulation will create the optimal sleeping environment by adjusting to each side of the bed based on the personalized sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. But the results are proven to be true. 8Sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. And it's not just me who sleeps on an 8Sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. So go to 8sleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. 8Sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. Next up is FTX. I'm sure you've heard of them by now, whether it's because of their partnerships with the Miami Heat, Golden State Warriors, the MLB, or Formula One. Whatever it may be, it's obvious that FTX is dominating the crypto conversation in sports. FTX US is a safe, regulated way to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Plus, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than any other exchange on the market. You can even buy NFTs on the FTX app from top ETH and Solana collections without getting hit with fees. Simply put, FTX gets it, and they want to make crypto exposure accessible, easy, and secure. Download the FTX app on your smartphone today and use code JOEPOMP, J-O-E-P-O-M-P, for a discount on trading fees and start building your portfolio in less than three minutes. It's literally that easy. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I'm here with Justin Marks today, who's the owner of Trackhouse Racing and a former professional race car driver. Justin, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for doing this. I feel like we should just start with your background because I think that's probably important so people understand where you're coming from. If you could just give us kind of the 30-second overview or a minute overview of who you are, where you came from, how you got into NASCAR, I think that'd probably be helpful. Sure. I mean, it's I think it's a pretty unique story. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, son of a sort of early computer entrepreneur, I guess, in St. Louis in the 80s and 
and the daughter of a, of an elementary school teacher. And, and, you know, I grew up and I was, my maternal grandfather sort of introduced me to the racetrack. You know, I would go up to these dusty old fairground dirt tracks and, and that was the first time I saw race cars and got inspired by them. And then in the late eighties, we relocated to Northern California. My father just sort of was one of these early people that saw, you know, that there was a, there was a technology boom on the horizon, the Silicon Valley. And so we sold our house and we packed up in our cars and we drove to California and, and I grew up in the Silicon Valley and, you know, really was passionate about racing and, and was a fan of it, but not in a racing family or anything. So, you know, as, as I, I got sort of two educations at the same time. I was able to watch our family, you know, build great businesses in the Valley, see disruptive companies come in and completely change industries. But on the other side, I was watching race cars on the race weekends and going to the racetracks. And so in high school, I went to racing school and got my, my regional racing license. And then, you know, just started kind of going through the ranks, just started kind of the amateur ranks and pretty quickly raced for a Porsche team and then a BMW factory team in the mid 2000s, ended up going to NASCAR, moving to North Carolina. And then I kind of got into my mid thirties and my career sort of stalled out a little bit. I wasn't really on an upward trajectory anymore, just enjoying it. I was kind of selling my own sponsorships, but I wanted to get involved more on the business side of it. And, and, you know, just a few years ago, recognized that this, this industry was, was ready for, for new thinking and disruptive thinking. And so I retired from the car seat after, you know, just about 20 years and dove into the, the business side of the sport. Gotcha. That's helpful. And I want to pick that apart a couple pieces if we can. I want to start with becoming a NASCAR driver. Mm. How difficult is that for someone that wants to get into NASCAR? From Even if you start at, say, 10 years old, you know you want to be a NASCAR driver. Yeah. What are the steps to get there and how difficult is that? Well, it's extraordinarily difficult because there's just not that many jobs. I mean, there's there's 36 spots on every Sunday that roll off you know, onto the racetrack. And so you've got this sort of market of thousands and thousands of kids with dreams that want to go and, and race in NASCAR. And, and as you move up through the ranks, it just becomes a smaller and smaller field, right? Where it's, where it's, you know, even, even stick and ball sports, the number of total athletes is pretty big. So, you know, a lot of these racers will start at the local go-kart track and, you know, the more they win, kind of like move up through the ranks and, and get different opportunities. And, you know, when you reach the top level, a lot of these drivers have come kind of through different scenarios. I mean, I, I've, you know, one of my drivers is from Monterey, Mexico, grew up in, in sort of the Mexico go-kart scene. And my other one's an eighth generation watermelon farmer from Florida who, who, you know, went to his local fairgrounds track and came up that way. So there's a lot of different ways to do it, but you know, you, you have to, you have to win at the lower ranks. You have to get noticed pretty quickly. And uh, as people start noticing your names and watching you, you start getting these opportunities. But as I mentioned, it just, the field gets smaller and smaller and smaller and you know, for me, I actually didn't come up in the NASCAR world. I came up sports car racing. So in 2006, I was racing for the factory BMW team and BMW, they were between model years on the M3 and they were actually taking 2007 off in the North American production market for the M3. So they pulled out of racing that year. And so we all had to kind of scatter and figure out where we were going to go next. And I packed up my bags and moved to North Carolina and completely switched careers in the, in the middle and kind of started over in NASCAR. So there's a lot of different ways to do it, but you know, you have to be able to do well. You have to be able to be good at being a brand ambassador and procuring your own sponsorship. And, and like I said, it gets pretty thin at the top. And how difficult was it to, to give up essentially, right? When you're in that thick of things and you're a race car driver and then say, Hey, look, I want to go do the business side of this. Was it just something that you knew internally you were much better at and would enjoy more? Or were, was this kind of like a fight inside yourself that you didn't know what to do? You know, getting out of the out of the seat was it was an extraordinarily difficult decision to make. It wasn't an extraordinarily difficult decision. It was a, a difficult experience because it was all that I had known and, and I came up through the ranks driving. But 
But yeah, I did get to that point in my career where, you know, if I'm going to fly to the heights of this sport and I'm going to write a chapter in the history of books of this sport, it became pretty apparent that wasn't going to happen driving because I sort of was good enough to be there, but I wasn't good enough to be great. And I mean, growing up the way that I grew up and, and really being business minded, I'd started small businesses through my driving career. I just noticed that the, the, the existing ownership group in the sport was starting to age out and things were getting kind of stale and there was no one really executing and deploying a brand. And so as I started looking at it and really seeing what the opportunity was, I I got really, really excited about that. And I went through a period where appeared a lot of self-reflection, say, is this this the path that you want to go on? I don't regret it for for one moment, but I do just love driving race cars and and I'll, I'll still dabble in it a little bit, but but this project behind me is the one that's that's really important to me. Wait, you still drive like NASCAR or you drive just for fun on the track sometimes? I just drive for fun on the track sometimes. I mean, I, I uh, last year I raced a couple kind of like amateur races. And then I raced in a series called the Trans Am Series that ran in support for the IndyCar race in Nashville at the street courses. So I did a little bit because it is, it is still fun for me to get in a race car and go fast. I just don't do it at the professional level really anymore. Have you driven an IndyCar? No. You know, in my mid-20s, I... I I really had an interest in going to the Indianapolis 500, but for, you know, for a 25 year old that never driven open wheel, that was a sports car racer that it, there wasn't really many teams that were interested in fielding my call. So, so never got that chance, but I think it'd be really fun. I asked because I, I've been to the Indianapolis 500 as a spectator, of course, for, you know, five or six years when I was younger. And I always remember there was like typically one or two people that would do the Indianapolis 500. And then I think, was it the, the Coca-Cola 600? Yeah, whatever. Yep. Yeah. In the afternoon or that night. Yeah. And they would yeah. fly out right after the race and go do that. Yeah. And I yeah. was always thinking to myself, like, that's got to be extremely difficult, not only mentally, but physically, because I'm sure yeah. these guys are losing maybe 10 plus pounds. Maybe you could speak to it more, but they're losing a lot of weight in the car. Their heart rate is up for an extended period of time. You're traveling and then you got to go do it again. Maybe that's actually a fun place to, to go to, which is like the athlete portion of this. I'm sure you've heard it before. Like are race car drivers athletes or no? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it depends on what your definition of an athlete is. I mean, I, I define an athlete as someone that uses their body in, in competition. And you absolutely 100% do that as a race car driver because the environment is very, very different. Athletes come in all different shapes and sizes. I mean, it's a fast twitch fiber versus, you know, slow twitch fiber. Like, do you have to be able to run fast to be an athlete? Like, I don't think so. I mean, these cars are, you know, you're withstanding G loading of two and a half to three Gs twice a lap for you know, three and a half hours, it's 140 degrees inside the car. You know, the average heart rates of, of these guys is, is, you know, between 130 and 155 for most of the race, you'll lose a few pounds of water weight during the course of a race. So it is, it's an incredible physical challenge. So yeah, I a hundred percent believe them to be athletes. My two drivers, Ross and Daniel, they spent when they're not at the racetrack in the race car, they, they spend probably 50 to 60% of their workday in physical training to be ready for the weekend. Cause that, that's really what you need to lean on when you're hot and you're depleted and you're tired and, and you need to execute at the end of the race to win the big ones. And what are they doing for physical training? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's strength. You build certain strength because what we're doing is we're with loading, we're experiencing G forces that are really, really high. So, you know, upper body strength, neck strength, core strength, things like that to be able to not just sort of fold over in the seat is really, really important. Big endurance training, like training the endurance systems of the body, right? So it's a lot of hours of, of cycling and running and things like that. We're at sub aerobic threshold where you're really training the, the energy system of your body. And then things like reaction and processing training in a fatigued state. So what they'll do is they'll train to a really, really fatigued state where they're tired, they're out of breath, they're just trying to get themselves back, and then they'll have to like do an exercise where they make really, really quick decisions. So they're training themselves to be able to be critical thinkers 
in states of depletion. And then there's just all these different kind of modalities. Because what you're trying to do is you're just trying to have a really effective decision maker at the end of the race when all the systems of your body are ready to just go lay on the couch. Yeah, so I asked because I just looked it up on the computer here. And I remember seeing something from Connor Daly, who's an IndyCar driver last year. And he wears a whoop. You know what whoop is? Whoop's like yep. the, uh, the yep. wearable. So I wear a whoop too. And it's, it's what got me interested in this is because he posted his stats from the day, one of his races at, at Texas Motor Speedway. And the highest whoop goes up to on a exercise level is 21. That's the peak, right? So like maybe you get eight or nine, but it actually gets harder to get higher as you get closer to 21. 21 would be like climbing Mount Everest, for example. He got to 20.7, which is pretty much the highest I've ever seen it. He burnt 5,500 calories in one day and he had two racing sessions. I, I don't know what necessarily happened in the morning, but the race was at night and he was in the car two times. So maybe there's, I don't know if there's qualifying. It's like a warm up. They basically yeah, like a warm up session, yeah. Gotcha. So his heart rate was at essentially it averaged 155 for, for two hours and 30 minutes, but it was at 175 for about an hour and a half of that. Right. So he's burning an absurd amount of calories. His heart rate is extremely high in the car, basically the entire time. And it's really physically demanding. And then you're probably not getting much sleep after that. I imagine too, whether you're traveling or your adrenaline's just too high or whatever it is. So like I'm on team athlete. But one of the things I also want to talk about is Formula One and its impact on racing. I'm sure that you've heard from other people. A lot of Americans seem to be interested in Formula One, especially over the last two years from what they've done on the content side. It feels to me with the limited knowledge I have about your business that you guys are doing an incredible job of like building this brand, not necessarily just focusing on the driver, but focusing on your team name right? And saying, hey, we're Trackhouse. This is our, our, our brand. Do you guys see what Formula One is doing? as a positive for NASCAR? Like, is that something that all boats kind of rise with the tide? Or do you guys see that as like a direct competitor and you guys don't necessarily want them to succeed and you want the American fans to come to NASCAR? I think the right way to describe exactly what you said, the rising tide raises all ships. And I mean, I think that, you know, that racing is a niche sport in America and we can't afford to be in competition with each other. I think we all have to help. We have to help each other. We have to get as many eyeballs on the sport as, as possible, because I think if you're a fan of one type, you can be a fan of, of the other. And, you know, Formula One has done a great job in the United States of creating real aspirational brand or globally of creating a real aspirational brand that's now, you know, attracting some really high-end companies and commanding some really high-dollar partnerships over there. And, and we look at that as great as a great thing because I think if there's more people watching Formula One in America, it's more people potentially will switch the channel and check out a NASCAR race too just because we are essentially kind of doing the same thing. And I do look at Formula One as, as inspiration because it's really culturally forward and it's really relevant with where global trends are on the business side, on the culture side, on the fashion side, on the athlete sports side, everything like that. I mean, they're racing – this weekend on a street course around the Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, Florida, like they announced they're going to the strip next year to put in the start finish line right in front of the Bellagio Hotel in Vegas. You know, that kind of out of the box thinking, real, true, amazing event promotion is very, very inspirational. And I think that NASCAR is watching what they're doing. I think IndyCar is watching what they're doing and, and figuring out what works and using it as, as inspiration to build something great. So, I mean, for us at Trackhouse, we are truly trying to build a brand. We are trying to build a brand that resonates with fans. It delivers a lot of value for our partners. See, what makes Formula One different is that, you know, you have all these teams that are essentially, they are brands, right? You've got Ferrari and you've got Mercedes and you've got Red Bull and, you know, McLaren, on and on. In NASCAR, you have a lot of teams that are named after their, or the namesakes of their owners. And their owners own, you know, car dealership empires or, you know, like Joe Gibbs, former you know NFL coach. You got Joe Gibbs Racing and Hendrick Motorsports and Penske Racing and all. 
what no one's really done in NASCAR is is actually created a brand that follows that sort of Formula One type model where you do something that you can, that can transcend the sport, which is what we're trying to do at Trackhouse and be able to penetrate other markets, be able to be really, really modular. And that was really important and central to the ethos of what Trackhouse is all about because it needs to be bigger than any one person. I need, as the founder CEO, I need to be able to someday walk away from this and then just continue to watch it grow in somebody else's hands. And I think that's important to me as an entrepreneur. So, I mean, to answer your question without getting too long-winded, Formula One has done a great job of building a brand that resonates with people. And that's what Trackhouse is trying to do in our sport. Gotcha. And one of the things I saw on a video, I think it was a, a Fox promotion of NASCAR, but you were the main focus of it was the idea that you guys don't promote one individual driver over the other, right? So in, in NASCAR, sometimes it feels like as a spectator that it's more of an individual sport. Sure, there's teams and you want the teams to win and all of this, but the drivers are really promoted and put on this pedestal. If you, if you think about it, at least historically, the last generation of drivers, Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Gordon, all these people, like they were stars. And one of the things you mentioned in the video, which I'd love to hear you talk more about is the idea like all your clothing has both numbers on it, right? The engineers work together. They sit in the same room. The cars are worked on in the same room and et cetera. Like, is that the type of team ethos that you think is going to be beneficial going forward? It's definitely central to, to what we're trying to do here. I mean, this sport underwent a, a dramatic paradigm shift last year when they introduced an entirely new type of car, where in all of the decades leading up to 2022, these teams were, were designing the cars and manufacturing the cars themselves. So the teams could actually produce a piece of equipment that was mechanically superior to other teams. And that's how they competed. Well, NASCAR completely blew that model up and went to a car that was completely third-party vendor parts supplied. And so we became, we basically became an assembly company, not a manufacturing company. So we just assemble the cars. And what that means is that when we go to the racetrack now, we have the exact same piece of equipment as everybody else. And we don't have to be worried about getting beat because another team has 20 more million dollars than us, you know, to sink into engineering, to design a piece of suspension geometry or chassis design that's just fundamentally faster than what we have. So that, I believe, creates the opportunity to build a real team because we can start actually modeling the enterprise around what a sports team looks like. We can be really stronger together. What you had in the past is you had, you know, you'd have race teams within a company, right? Hendrick Motorsports has four race teams you know, you'd have race teams within a company that were in competition with each other. And to a certain extent, that is healthy because they challenge each other and, and make each other better. But you get to diminishing returns on that pretty quickly, too. And one team's hiding stuff from another team or misleading a strategic approach to a race, you know, in their meetings or something like that. That really is a, is a risk to the enterprise. And so when I came in, I said, look, we've got the same stuff. We've got two drivers that have never won. We've got two crew chiefs that have never won. So we can really wipe the slate clean here and figure out together as a group what's going to make us faster together. And that's been something that's really, really been important to me. And I think this new car is going to showcase those teams that really focus on cohesiveness and information sharing and teamwork. And it's going to really expose those teams that have a bad culture because this car will not allow you to go fast if you're doing the wrong things. So it's, it's, entire, it's very, very important to track us. And it's true. I mean, what Daniel said in that video is true. What I told these guys is, when I look at Trackhouse, I look at us as coming to, to the gunfight with one gun and two bullets, and we try to win as a company, and one day it might be Ross, and one day it might be Daniel, and I think ultimately that's what's going to lead to the success of the brand. I love that. Yeah, I love that. I want to learn a little bit about the business of actually owning a team. Can you talk to me about not only how this was like set up and incorporated and how you actually start doing it, but how you make money today? Yeah, so the way that I look at it, I mean, it's very difficult to make money, and I look at this as... as 
you know, much like a sports franchise where they go for very, very high valuations. They don't really make much money. It's about asset value. It's about growing asset value over time. And that's the way that I approach it. I mean, I, we don't want to lose money, right? We can't lose money. But but it's what we're trying to do is create an enterprise here that, that is a truly an asset sports property that, that gains value over time. And what's central to that is what we call our charters. And a charter is basically our franchise. So there's 36 franchises in the sport. And when you own one of those franchises, it guarantees you a starting spot in every race in case more cars show up that they have spots for. And it unlocks a percentage of the media rights deal that's paid out to the teams, just like every other stick and ball sport. So we have two charters here, the 99 car and the one car. There are some teams that have four. There are some teams that have one. And that's that's hugely important because we've got $860 million a year coming into this sport from Fox and NBC, and a portion of that gets distributed to the team. So it's pretty central to running our business. It's a big line item on our balance sheet, so on our PL. So really, like the way that we look at the business structure, there's there's sort of three tiers of how we of how we drive revenue. One is our media sharing rights from the deal, from the, the, the league. The second one is our relationship with our OEM. In our case, it's Chevrolet. So Chevrolet helps us from a financial standpoint, but also you know, really from a technology and, and engineering support, you know, knowledge and simulation support standpoint. And then the third one is sponsorship that we sell in these cars. I mean, these are 200 mile an hour billboards that race, you know, 36 times a year on Fox and NBC. And so we sell sponsorships. So, you know, we've got 15 or so partners that, that will make investments at different levels to, you know, have their logos on the car, to bring their people to the races, to help, you know, facilitate B2B in the sport and things like that. So those are sort of like the three areas. And what we do when those all add up at the end of the year, we just try to build the most competitively effective business structure that we can for that amount of money because there's fluctuations and years, some down years in sponsorship and up years in sponsorship. There's some years where you won't do well on the racetrack and you'll earn a little bit less money from the league because we do race for purse, purse money. We do get bonuses from our, our partners when we do well. This year, we're having an up a pretty up year. We've got, you know, one of our cars has already won twice and is sitting second in the standings right now, which, which has been great for the business. And, you know, I, I will say that, that that is how all of the teams work. Our media rights renewal deal is coming up. It's on the horizon here with the league pretty soon. So, so we are, we are all sort of auditing the business model and trying to have communications with NASCAR and how to make the best decision in our next media rights deal to make these teams, you know, these companies as financially healthy as possible. But I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily place a premium at this stage of the company on profitability. We are building a brand. We are scaling and building our company. We've got great partners that are allowing us to bring competitive equipment to the racetrack and growing the asset value of, of our franchise and, and what we've got. And I think, you know, I think once we get established, it's really only our second year. I think once we get established, we know how to economically model this new car and how to build our budget around this new car. Then, then probably starting next year, we can really become efficient, and start focusing on profitability. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think about a lot because if you look at even the biggest sports organizations in the United States, the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, et cetera, some of those teams certainly make money now from an operating profit standpoint, but they didn't historically. Yeah. A lot of NBA teams, even just five or 10 years ago, were losing money on an annual basis. And they've really relied heavily on the media rights increases over the last decade to, yep. to see their valuation spike. Is that something that you guys see as that North Star of like, hey, this is really what's going to drive our valuation higher? Or is it developing actual new revenue streams outside of sponsorships, outside of media rights? Well, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that, that is that is 100% truly the North Star. And, it, and when this next media rights deal comes up, which the exclusive negotiating period, I think, opens in maybe Q4 this year, Q1 next year, we want to be voices in the room saying, look, we're working very, very hard to put your show on. And the more access to media rights revenue we can have, the healthier organizations we can be and our valuations 
can skyrocket. And, you know, ultimately what we want to do is we want to be less reliant on corporate sponsorship to just pay the bills. Like we want to have corporate sponsorship be a fundamental to business development. We want to be able to take that revenue and reinvest it in the partnership to try to grow it, to try to deliver as much ROI as possible. And right now those sponsorships are really just helping us make payroll. And so that's very much the mission that the teams are on is to get to a place with the league where they can be compelled to listen to, you know, the, the headwinds that we face from a business standpoint and, and, and how it, you know, how our desires to have better enterprise value can ultimately deliver them more value as a league. But we don't know where that's going to go. So the other part of that is, at least speaking on Trackhouse's part, we, we are starting to be very creative about looking around how we can really monetize every square foot of our shop. How can we get really creative about business growth to, to drive new sources of revenue? We run our business out of Nashville, Tennessee. We're in the early stages of, of you know, basically determining what a Trackhouse expansion from a, from a brand and entertainment and music standpoint looks like in the market of Nashville. And so we're, we are trying to get creative because... We can't just sit back and wait on NASCAR to write our checks for us either. I mean, we have to we have to get innovative and we have to think strategically about how to grow. But, but we're pretty aggressively pursuing both of those paths. Yeah, you're like a new age thinker. I can already tell because if you think about the NBA, like look at the Golden State Warriors, for example, or, or I talked about the Milwaukee Bucks the other day. And these are enterprises that have the sports organization and the franchise kind of as the centerpiece. But then they have all of these ancillary businesses off of them that are related yep. to entertainment, right? Yep. So the, the Golden State Warriors are a good example because they just launched an entertainment company, right? Golden State Entertainment. And now they're going to start making shows. They're going to start making movies like studio productions that they're going to sell to streaming services that they're going to do off of that because they already have that, that attention. Right? And that's really what it is. Once you have the attention of a fan base and you have people that are interested in your brand, you're able to monetize in a bunch of different avenues. And I think, sure, the media rights is a massive part of that. But it seems like you're thinking about it in a way of like, let's grab that attention and redirect it towards some of our new businesses that might end up making our team more money that other teams may not necessarily be thinking about outside of media rights. You're exactly right. And the thing is, is, for so long, these teams have sort of just lived in this bubble of like the most important thing we have to do, period, is just try to make fast race cars. That, that is fundamentally the most important thing. And, you know, that's just not the world that we're living in anymore. That's not to say that fast race cars aren't important. But what I mean by that is the fact that we can't dump tens of millions of dollars into these race cars to make them faster because we all have the same stuff now. So, so we're focusing our attention on that side of it. I mean, we're building just underneath me right now, we're, we're building a, an entire media and digital studio where we, can, where we can create original content. We can do shows, podcasts, you know, all that kind of stuff. We can start showcasing the stories that we have in the shop, tell the stories of the pit crew, do sponsor showcases, do, you know, weekly highlights of, of the track house race on the previous weekend, on and on and on and on. And that that's really important to us. And it's why, you know, we're, obviously leaning into into our presence in Nashville and trying to find find some revenue there. But you know, I look at like the Cowboys, right? It's like the Cowboys and what they've built to start at Frisco, right? When you when when that's their just their practice facility. Where for so many years NFL teams had their practice facilities. But the start Frisco is a very diverse entertainment district and hospitality and hosting and events district. And so how can we bottle a little bit of that up into track house both, you know, brick and mortar in our facility and also sort of in the digital and content world is, is very central to our business development strategy. Yeah, the, the Star's a great example. The other one that I use when I mentioned the Bucks is the Deer District. They built this real estate property outside of their arena, which has bars, it has restaurants, it has games and all of this stuff. But now they're building a hotel, they're building an apartment building, they're building a supermarket, they're building a gym, and they're going to create this mini city essentially right outside. And guess what? Yeah. Now they're selling the naming rights to that 
city for three to $4 million over 10 years annually, 30 to $40 million in total. And that's a team that makes $20 million a year in operating profit. So you get in this weird world where you're able to monetize these assets almost better than you are the actual sports franchise because the margins are so thin and you have payroll and you have all these other things. So I think it's a super interesting time. And I think people are realizing whether it's NASCAR or one of the other major sports leagues here in the United States, like all you're really acquiring is attention. And then it's up to you to kind of monetize that outside of that. So I'm a big fan. Yeah, the Atlanta Braves did the same thing. And and my wife and I went to a World Series game. It was the first time that, I, that I'd seen that development that they built down there. And it was inspiring. I mean, I was down there with all the fans who were watching baseball, but I was walking through the whole thing going like, how do I take some inspiration from this in, in what we're doing? And I think hopefully what you're going to see in the future of NASCAR, or maybe Trackhouse will start this, this sort of trend, is, is can a race shop go from being buried inside of a 200,000 square foot concrete tilt up in an industrial park to downtown? somewhere where it's truly a, you know, it's, it's a public facing business. And we've, I've got designs on a shop. that's an attraction. It truly is an attraction. I mean, obviously the challenge is zoning because it's, you know, it's a lot noisier to run race cars than it is to throw a football. And so, you know, we are truly an industrial use, but, but can a major U S market be motivated to create a zoning that would allow a NASCAR team to run engines, practice pit stops, run a chassis dyno as a true showcase in a, in a retail and entertainment district. And I think, if you can do that, there is a tremendous opportunity to drive revenue and to truly grow and build a racing team. It's so much more than a racing team. It's a, it's a lifestyle brand. It's an entertainment district and something that compels hopefully, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a year in person. I'd be strapping fans inside the car with a driver. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say go for a ride, sit in there for the pit stop, do whatever you want to do. Make sure you sign this waiver, of course. But outside of that, you know, you can get in the car. That's fine. I love it. I think that's super interesting. How big is the business today? Like how many employees do you guys have? So we have about 130 people and that's down fairly significantly from the old car just because we have a lot less manufacturing operations and engineering CAD design, things like that. But we have 130 people. I would say about 45 of them go to the races. We have a lot of people that work in the shop on assembly, quality control, production. Obviously, we've got administrative marketing operations, things like that. So, you know, it's a pretty well-oiled machine. It's a very detailed it's a very ornate logistical process getting these teams up and down the road and we've got pit crews that you know we've got chartered planes in the industry they're going back and forth you know all hours of the day to the race so we race every single weekend 36 actually 38 out of 41 weeks we, we race and it's all over the country so it's an incredible logistical exercise is that the most expensive part of the business the logistical side of it getting cars to races moving the parts around everything associated with that the most expensive part of the business is, is our people, is payroll, because these are all very highly skilled positions and, and we have to hire very skilled people that are very good at what they do. So, so payroll is big. And I mean, really the expense of racing, you know I mean? It's like we lease engines from an independent engine company called ECR. And, you know, that's $6 million a year just for the two cars to, to lease those engines. And it's worth it because I don't want to own an engine shop and have to have to have all those people. And what happens if, if the car crashes, lights on fire and the engine gets destroyed? That's just part of, it's part of the deal. They bake that into the rate, right? It doesn't happen very often, but they bake it into the rate. I mean, I think it burned to the ground and we wouldn't get a bill from it. So they, they kind of, obviously they build it into their margins or their model. But yeah, I mean, really it's the people. And then, you know, it costs us, it really costs us $12, $13 million a year to go to the races. So it's, it's, it's not a small sporting enterprise. And how much does it cost to sponsor the car? Cause I asked because I saw Dana White's howler head 
on the car for one of their races. And I thought that was awesome. I'm like, this yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. They got Dana White's liquor on there. And I'm assuming it sounds like at least you can do it on like a per race basis. Or do you guys look for long-term partners? I mean, I think we would prefer long, long-term partners, but you know, our business model is set up that we could have a difference. We have 72 races a year between the two cars. We could have 72 different sponsors. We wrap the cars every week in-house. They're full car wraps. There's no paints or anything like that. So, so we can do a completely different car every week. When it comes to the, the sponsorship cost, I mean, every team is different. I mean, the drivers have different salaries. The overhead is different. The cost to compete is different. We've got some teams out here that have 40 acre campuses that they have to pay for and, you know, which we don't. So, you know, it's really kind of anywhere between, you know, on the really, really low end, $100,000 dollars a race to, to, you know, the, the really high end stuff is north of 400. And it kind of just depends on, it depends on a lot of different factors. We've worked very, very hard to create a lot of value for our partners. Our price point is, is lower than a lot of our competition. And, and I think we're outperforming a lot of our competition at higher price points. It's because we've, we've focused on really, really great talent and great execution strategy. You know, it's just sort of what you want out of your sponsorship too. I mean, some are, some just want a logo on the car and they use it as a, as a media buy. And so there's just not that many asks around logos on cars. And then there's some that are, that are all about entertainment. So there's a tremendous amount of cost and hosting and hospitality and logistics, you know, at track stuff. So it's, it's a complicated framework, but there's just a lot of different ways that you can do it. I was going to say, I mean, we'll just take the lower end of that. Maybe it ends up being more, but essentially if you're able to buy a wrap on a car for a hundred thousand dollars and you said one of your drivers is in second place, maybe finishes 10th, 15th, 20th, whatever. But ultimately that's exactly what you're doing is it's a media buy, right? You're able to monetize that, that asset or that purchase and, and amortize it over social media, over commercials, over all this other stuff. Do they have the rights to that once they buy it? Yeah, they do. And, and the difficult part about that is that you actually don't know how you're going to do. Being compelling as, a, as an opportunity for a media buy is something you have to build over time. The aggregate of how often you're on camera, that, at the end of the day, it just comes from leading laps and winning races. And so if you build a winning legacy, then a FedEx can go to Joe Gibbs Racing and say, look, Denny Hamlin's won three Daytona 500s. He averages three wins a year. He averages you know, 600 minutes, I'm making up numbers of in-focus time a year on the broadcast. And that, that reconciles with our, you know, our media algorithm, our media buy algorithm. So, so we'll spend the money on our side of things. We want to deliver the value in the sponsor before any exposure value, right? And that, that means basically our hosting and hospitality, our B2B, creating a lot of value at the racetrack for companies to be able to drive business and, and bring clients and customers and prospective customers out to the race. And then, you know, when one of our cars goes to the front and leads laps, that media value is icing on the cake, at least at this stage of our company. If we can keep doing this over the years, then then companies you know, can come into the sport and go, man, Trackhouse is the talk of the town. They lead laps every weekend between the two cars. That's where we want our, our advertising money to be. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too because it goes back to the value that you would create if you built Trackhouse into this massive brand, right? Because then you have this audience and this digital capability to blow up these sponsors from a press perspective before you even get to the track, right? Before even the hospitality stuff, just on social, on online, and all these other things. And one of the reasons why I mentioned it is because, as you know, that's what these companies track. And I saw one of the things I always think about is Mercedes in their quarterly earnings, right? So literally the bigger company, I forget how you pronounce the German name, but essentially their, their parent company that owns Mercedes, literally on a quarterly basis or an annual basis, they break down how much TV time the Formula One team received each year, right? So there's 90 million people that watch every Formula One race globally. And I think they say that when they're not this year, obviously, but when they're a top team, one or two, they receive about 25% of the TV time each race because they're at the front and they're leading the race. And that's incredibly valuable, but they've also built this brand. And I feel like, at least from a spectator standpoint, 
I don't know if anyone's really accomplished that really, really well in NASCAR yet from like a branding standpoint. And if you can do that, I feel like that's probably pretty valuable. That's very much the mission that we're on. I mean, a number of years ago, Red Bull tried it. They were in the series for a while and it was the wrong time for them to come in and they overspent and they were here for three or four years and then split. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I think it goes back to the fact that there's no real brand that is competing in the space. So, you know, when you think of the teams, again, it's Roger Penske and, and, and Penske Racing and his, his empire of truck leasing and auto dealerships and automotive businesses. It's Rick Hendrick and his automotive empire. It's Joe Gibbs. It's Gene Haas, Haas CNC Machining, right? Global Machining Company. It's got a Formula One team. And, you know, those aren't really brands where they look at their exposure on the racetrack and have any kind of like value. You know, they don't sort of derive any, any kind of value. But if we can be... If they're talking about track house and, and what comes with that is an amplification of our partner's messaging and, and, and brand and all that, then that's the value that we can work hard to create that's going to really allow us to stand out from our competitors. I love it. I got one more question for you before I let you go. If you win or you place better than him, are you talking shit to Michael Jordan at the racetrack? 100%. <laughs> he's a hard person to talk shit to. I mean, I, he's, I mean Michael's a great guy and we're very, we're very, very fortunate to have him have him in the sport. And this is a sport of a lot of emotion, a lot of ego and a lot of risk and a lot at stake. And so people want to win. People want to win really, 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 really bad. But I mean, it's, it's, it's great when guys like that come into the sport, it elevates everything. And it's just, it's good for all of us. The first, I'll tell one quick story before I let you go. The track house's first race was Michael Jordan's team's first race. It was a 2021 Daytona 500. And I didn't even think about this, but I was getting on the plane to fly down to Daytona. And my wife looks at my feet and she goes, you're going to the debut of the track house race. It's the debut of 2311 and Michael Jordan. And you're going to wear red and white Jordans to the Daytona 500. And I was like, oh shit, maybe I should have, should have rethought that. But I went into the, I went into his suite before the race. And first thing he said was nice shoes, man. And we had a great talk and I'm glad that he's here, but I am looking forward to seeing him again and reminding him that we've won two races this year and he's won zero. I love that. You'll probably be wearing maybe regular Nikes, not Jordans this time. Just to yeah, uh, wear my Kobe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just to let them know that you're not supporting them in that way. But that's awesome, man. I appreciate you doing this. This was a lot of fun. I'm going to have to come to a race now. I feel like I'm missing out. I feel like I need to come see what you guys are all about, see what you're doing. And I've seen a bunch of the stuff online and it looks like an incredible atmosphere. So I promise you, this is me saying that I will come to a race, whether it's this year or next year. But Again, I appreciate you doing this. Thanks so much. Yep, we'll have you anytime. Thanks, Joe. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.